We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 43. Genesis 43, this is the word of the Lord. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty have mercy, give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the men brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys." When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, O sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hands into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? 
And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. The famed Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Our sinnership, that is, our sinnership, the fact that we are sinners, is that emptiness into which the Lord pours his mercy. This morning, as we look at this next chapter in the life of Joseph and his brothers, we find God pouring out mercy on the family of Israel. And we'll see that they hoped for God's mercy, but they didn't really expect it. They longed for it. They prayed for it, but they expected the worst. We know that they were sinners. We saw this last week, uh, that their consciences were recently refreshed with the, the guilt and knowledge of their sin. They had sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery, and they believed into death. They had disregarded his anguished pleas for mercy, and now they expect to find none for themselves. But thankfully, God is far more merciful than they were. God is far more merciful than we are. He is a God of mercy, and He shows mercy to whom He will show mercy according to His good and perfect will. Romans 9.16, So then it is not of Him who wills, nor of Him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God's mercy is not conditioned upon our worthiness. We can't earn it. That's what it means when it says it's not of him who runs. Mercy is not a prize that we win by competing in a race. We don't choose mercy for ourselves. It's not of him who wills. It's not dependent on our will, choosing God and choosing his mercy. Rather, God's mercy is dependent on nothing but the will of God alone. Romans 9.15, the verse before that, quoting from Exodus, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And we see a specific mention of God's mercy in our text this morning in verse 14. This is Jacob's prayer. He says, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So this is a prayer of sorts, a blessing that uh, Jacob speaks over his sons in hope, but with a a certain resignation. He, He prays for God's mercy before this Egyptian governor, but he has also come to accept whatever God's will might be even if that means that he is bereaved of his children. 
What we'll see in the text, however, is that God often works mercy to us from unexpected persons in unexpected circumstances and in unexpected ways. So this is our our key verse this morning and our main idea. And since this is our main point, before we go looking at this text to discover God's mercy in it, I think we should begin with the definition of mercy. So let's answer that question. What is God's mercy? Well, it's something we hear a lot about in the Scriptures. I've already read several verses, both Genesis and Romans, speaking of mercy. We find this concept all through the Scriptures, particularly in two places. It's interesting, the two books of the Bible that contain the most mentions of mercy are the book of Exodus and the book of Psalms. There are a hundred mentions of mercy in the book of Psalms. In the book of Exodus, we find God miraculously delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. He leads them through the Red Sea. He destroys Pharaoh's army. And Moses sings a song of victory after that event in which he praises the mercy of God. And he says this in Exodus 15, beginning in verse 11, "'Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness?' fearful in praises, doing wonders. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. So this gives us a little bit of a clue as to what mercy is. Israel was suffering in slavery and bondage, oppressed and miserable. God saw their estate and he did good to them. He delivered them from their bondage. So we can see that mercy is particularly that goodness which is done for those who are miserable and unable to do for themselves. We see this concept in the Psalms as well. Psalm 4, verse 1, "'Give ear unto me when I call, God of my righteousness. Have mercy, hear my prayer. Thou hast enlarged me in distress.'" In distress, God shows us mercy. So accordingly, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink defined mercy as the goodness of God when shown to those in misery. His mercy is great, without end, tender like a father, is shown to thousands, and after periods of chastisement, returns. So there's our our basic definition of mercy. Mercy is the goodness of God shown to those who are in misery. In our text this morning, we see that God shows us mercy from unexpected persons in unexpected circumstances and in unexpected ways. So let's begin with unexpected persons. Jacob and his sons have endured uh, another season of famine in the land. The grain they had purchased on their previous trip to Egypt has been consumed. And so Jacob instructs his sons to return to Egypt and buy more. But Judah points out that there is a problem they're going to have to deal with. He says in verse 3, But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So see, there's grain in Egypt, and they have money to go buy it with. The problem isn't with the grain supply in Egypt. The problem isn't with their economic situation. The problem is with the man. This is a reference, of course, to Joseph, though they know him only as a hostile Egyptian governor 
who spoke harshly to them, falsely accused them of being spies, and set this unwanted burden on them that they would not be allowed to trade in the land or to buy more food unless they brought their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them. So they have a problem with this man, with this person. Their expectation is that when they return to Egypt, there's going to be trouble because of this hostile Egyptian governor. He is the one who has full authority over whether or not they can buy food. And he doesn't seem to like them or to trust them. But they're hungry. They need food. Judah says they've waited longer than they should have to go buy more because of their apprehension about dealing with this man. He says in verse 10, For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. They've lingered. They've delayed the inevitable return to Egypt to buy more grain. But they can't wait any longer. They must return or starve. They're in a miserable condition. And this governor is the only person who can show them mercy and the last person from whom they expect it. So Jacob prays over them. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man. Strangely, when they do return to Egypt, there's no mention of them being spies. Joseph doesn't treat them harshly like he did on the previous trip. Rather, he treats them with kindness. When they meet with Joseph, he speaks kindly to them. In fact, he says in verse verse 27, Then he asked them about their well-being. And said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? See, they expected harsh treatment from this man. And here he is asking them about their well-being. How are you guys doing? Are you okay? How are your families? How's your father's health? Then he does the drastically unexpected in verse 29. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. He had told them on on their previous visit that he feared God, but to have this Egyptian governor bestow a blessing of grace from God on their youngest brother was surely not what they had expected. Verse 30 continues, and it's very interesting because it, it tells us what Joseph was feeling. Now his heart yearned for his brother, So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep, and he went into his chamber and wept there. What does it mean that his heart yearned for Benjamin? I think we often read that and simply think that it means that he's missed his brother, he wants to be reunited with his family, and I'm sure that's part of it. But I think there's more to it than that. There's a passage in 1 Kings from the life of Solomon that I think sheds some light on this. If you'll remember, God had granted Solomon great wisdom in order to govern the people. And so one of the first displays of Solomon's wisdom is a a case that he has to deal with of two women who are fighting over a child. Both of these women have given birth. One of the children has died, and now both of the women are claiming that the living child belongs to them. And Solomon has to figure out who the real mother is. So his solution was to call for his servants to bring him a sword. And he says he wants the child divided in two with the sword and give half to each woman. In 1 Kings 3, it says, Then the woman whose son was living 
spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. Then she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him, for she is his mother. See, the real mother yearned with compassion for her son. She would rather that he live, even if raised by someone else, than that he be killed. This is the same phrase that's used of Joseph, that his heart yearned for his brother. The word heart, or translated, I believe, as bowels in the King James Version, is the same Hebrew word, rechaman, that is translated as compassion in 1 Kings. She yearned with compassion. Interestingly, this word is most often translated as mercy. It's the same word that was in Psalm 4 that I quoted a moment ago. It's the same word that's in verse 14 in Jacob's prayer. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man. Joseph was deeply moved with mercy toward his brother. He wanted good for Benjamin in the same way that the mother wanted good for her son. He saw the miserable estate that Benjamin was in. He had grown up without his older brother. In fact, he thought his older brother was dead. He had been brought down to Egypt with great fear and and dread of what might happen there. He's probably anxious, worried about his future. And Joseph was moved with mercy toward him. He displayed his mercy to Benjamin by the portion that that he sends to him from his own table in verse 34. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. John Gill comments on this verse and says that this was done out of his great affection to his brother, being his brother both by father and mother's side. This undoubtedly was designed as a peculiar favor and a mark of special honor and respect, it being being usual for princes to send messes from their tables to such as they favored. And particularly, it was usual with Egyptians for their kings to have double more than the rest in honor of them. But he gives him five times as much, and and five seems to be a, a significant number for Joseph in Egypt. If you'll remember, Joseph collected one-fifth of the produce during the good years. He'll later take five of his brothers and introduce them to Pharaoh. When the famine runs long and the Egyptian people run out of money to buy grain, Joseph makes a deal with them. He'll feed them, but he imposes a permanent tax of one-fifth on all future produce produced on their land. So giving Benjamin a portion of five times as much kind of fits with this pattern. But even with this honoring of Benjamin above the other brothers, it's not like the rest of them went hungry. They had a feast. The chapter ends by saying, so they drank and were merry with him. This harsh Egyptian that they had feared has shown them unexpected mercy kindness and honor. This is a pattern that continues throughout the scriptures and indeed throughout church history. Nebuchadnezzar, Ajahuras, Artaxerxes, Darius, Cyrus show mercy to God's people in their time of need. 
The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. This is as true today as it was in Joseph's day. Throughout history, God has moved the hearts of the least likely of men to show mercy to his children. This should be an encouragement to us. In the moment when you're in need, God may well send you mercy from someone you least expect it from. If he can move the hearts of kings and great men of authority, he can move the hearts of lesser men as well. And seeing that we often have no larger a view of what God is doing than did Joseph's brothers, we may often be tempted to jump to conclusions about who will be merciful and who won't. Instead, we should just boldly pray, like Jacob did, for God to give us mercy before others, especially those who are in positions of authority. God can and does still answer such prayers. The testimony of scriptures and history is that God often shows his people mercy in the unexpected persons, but also in unexpected circumstances. Joseph's brothers uh, expected a certain set of circumstances when they went to Egypt, but what they actually encountered by God's grace was entirely different. They waited as long as they could before returning to Egypt. It's been about a year probably. This means that they left Simeon, their brother, in an Egyptian prison for a year. They don't know if he's even still alive. Maybe he died from the deprivation and harshness of the prison. I mean, at the end of chapter 42, Jacob seems to think Simeon is as good as dead. He says in verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. He's dead. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. But here in chapter 43, as he prays over his sons, he prays in verse 14, And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. So there's some hope, there's some a prayer here that, that God would show mercy, that Simeon would still be alive and that, and that he would be released to them. So they head to Egypt expecting to find a situation in which recovering Simeon and and buying their grain and getting home with Benjamin intact is going to be a difficult proposition. They expect to be treated harshly. The last time they were there, they were falsely accused of being spies. And when they left, they found their money returned to them. They're afraid that this is going to be used against them as proof that they're not to be trusted. So Jacob instructs them to take some of the goods of the land of Canaan along with the money and try to smooth things over. And so that's what they do. They take some honey, some spices, some nuts. They take a gift. And they take the money from the first trip and more money for this trip. And they take Benjamin. And when they get to Egypt, they they come before Joseph to buy grain. And he doesn't even speak to them. He instructs his servant to take them away. And they don't know why. They're afraid. They think that they're about to be accused of stealing or of being spies. And interestingly, they presume that they're about to be seized and made into slaves. It says in verse 18, Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time 
that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. Now, given that they had sold their brother into slavery in Egypt, there's a certain amount of irony here that their fear is that of becoming slaves in Egypt. So they stop on the porch before they even enter the house and they attempt to convince the steward of their innocence. They they tell him, hey, we found the money in our sacks on our previous journey when we got home and, and we've brought it back with us along with more money to buy additional grain this trip. They're really concerned about proving to him that they're, they're innocent. They're making every effort to show that they're trustworthy. And I imagine they were not expecting the response they got from the steward of the house. In verse 23, but he said, peace be unto you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So first he offers them a a greeting of peace. And then he says that their God, the God of their father, has given them treasure. The books are balanced. There's no outstanding overdue fee for grain that they owe. This would be pretty shocking. They know that this was the money that they paid. It's the exact sums returned in their sacks. And here this Egyptian steward is telling them their account had been paid in full. They owe nothing. The money found in their sacks was a gift from their God. This is unexpected in several ways. First of all, have you ever dealt with a government official? Their expectation had to have been that even if there was an accounting error, and the books are showing that it was paid in full, and they're offering this man sacks full of money, that he would take it, put it in his pocket, walk away with it. His honesty and his integrity would be shocking. This guy is a steward in Egypt to the, the man who is second in command of the entire country. He has authority, and they have no way to hold him accountable. And he doesn't enrich himself in the situation. Secondly, the Egyptians were very proud of their gods. For this Egyptian official to speak well of their god, the god of their father, is odd to say the least. And he seems somewhat familiar. He doesn't even ask them what god they serve. He seems to know. And he says that their god has given them treasure. And then he brings Simeon out to them at Joseph's home. Simeon's not locked away in the deepest dungeon somewhere. He was right there at hand, prepared to be reunited with his brothers. The steward then goes on to show them kindness and hospitality, the sort that you would show to honored guests. He brings them water to wash the dust of the travels off their feet. He feeds their donkeys. This is not the reception they had expected at all. It's kind. It's welcoming. It's not harsh. It's not accusatory. And when Joseph gets there, they present him with the gift, and he's kind and warm towards them. The only other perplexing thing they find in their circumstances here is the seating at the table for this feast he's invited them to. The Egyptian governor has arranged their seating at the table in order by birthright. And that 
is a little disturbing and mysterious. And verse 33 says that the men looked in astonishment at one another. How could he know this? How did this Egyptian know what our birth order was? But then he serves them a feast sent from his own table. So they relax and enjoy probably what was the best meal they had had in quite a while. You know, in the previous chapter and continuing into this one, we've seen these brothers expect the worst out of their circumstances. But God has shown mercy on them. Things have turned out very different from how they had imagined they would. You know, we, we think that we understand our circumstances. We think we know what's happening in our lives. We don't. We, we don't know what God is doing. We can't see everything that he is orchestrating for our good. We're as blind as Joseph's brothers were. We don't know all the ways that God might be preparing to show us mercy in circumstances that we don't see lending themselves to mercy. We often imagine the worst when God is actually planning to show us great kindness. That Joseph's brothers thought they were being taken away to made into slaves, but Joseph had prepared a feast in their honor. They couldn't see the mercy they were about to be shown. The same is often true of us. We, we dwell on our circumstances, imagining everything that could possibly go wrong. And it is in those sorts of circumstances that cause us doubt and fear and worry that cause us to imagine the worst possible scenario, to to say with Jacob, all these things are against me. It's in those sorts of circumstances that God delights to show mercy to his children. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God instructs us in our time of need to boldly come before his throne in prayer in order to find mercy and grace. And since God commands us to do this, it shouldn't be a surprise to us when he actually does show us mercy. Psalm 147 verse 11 says, But in all those that do him fear, the Lord doth pleasure take. In those that to his mercy do, by hope themselves betake. The Lord is pleased when we depend upon his mercy. God often shows us mercy from unexpected persons and in unexpected circumstances, and he does it in unexpected ways. Jacob prayed that his sons would find mercy from God. He says in verse 14, And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, here's how, that he may release your other brother, that's Simeon and Benjamin. His hope was that God's in his mercy, would move this Egyptian governor to release Simeon and let all 11 of his sons return home in peace. That's what he prayed for. That's the mercy that he wanted from God. But God's mercy was greater than Jacob's prayer. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Psalm 36, 5. Simeon wasn't just released. 
He was returned to them before they were brought in to this feast. He was given water to wash along with the rest of them. He was included in the feast that Joseph had prepared for them. They hoped to escape Egypt unscathed and return home to their father, the eleven of them together. But they were honored with a royal feast. And though it's not complete in this chapter, we know that God wasn't just restoring Simeon and bringing Benjamin home safe. He was actually restoring Joseph to them. The son that Jacob had thought dead for over 20 years was being restored to him. God's mercy was greater than Jacob could imagine. In the darkness and despair of his grief, God was working mercy to him. No matter how dire your circumstances may seem, God is still God. And he is, according to the New Testament, the father of mercies. He has invited us to depend upon his mercy in faith. Joel Beakey, in his book, Living by God's Promises, says this. He says, the promises have their certainty of fulfillment in God's faithfulness, in that he cannot lie, but they have their manner of fulfillment in God's wisdom, in that he knows best. In temporal promises, God will either give the thing promised or that which is its better equivalent. If you pray for health, God will either give it or the strength to endure sickness, whichever is better. Likewise, if you pray for deliverance, he will either give deliverance or comfort in trial, whichever is better. Thus, God does not break his promise, but changes it to the better, catering his fulfillment to whatever will most benefit you spiritually and support your chief end. This is God's mercy to us. He gives us better than we even know how to ask. You know, I'm amazed from week to week how much overlap there ends up being between CLA and my sermon. We don't plan these things. God plans them. And if you're not coming to CLA, you're missing out on that blessing of seeing God do that and fit these things together. You know, one of the things I thought about this week is God created the world planning beforehand our salvation, predestinated before he even created the earth. But that means that his plan included Adam's sin. It included the fall. Why? Couldn't God have created a world in in such a way that Adam didn't sin? That mankind didn't fall into sin? Think through what that would be like. If, if, If man had never fallen into sin, what would our lives in this world be like? No sin, no sorrow, no sickness or death, no grieving. But also we would have no knowledge of God's mercy. We'd have no knowledge of his forgiveness or his grace to us. It wouldn't have been necessary. God did these things so that we could experience the fullness of who he is in ways that we would never have known if we didn't need his mercy and his grace. Now, of course, Paul in Romans 6 tells us 
what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Shall we go on sinning so that we get more of God's grace if that's how this works? Well, God forbid. But God worked these things out according to his perfect wisdom so that we would experience all of who our God is. Jacob only asked for Simeon returned and Benjamin safe, and God gave him back his lost son, Joseph. Sometimes we get so caught up in the immediate circumstances that we lose sight of eternity. We lose sight of the bigger picture. We pray for deliverance from the trouble we see with our eyes or imagine in our minds, but in his mercy, God is working out what is better. He's working our sanctification. He's increasing our faith. He's teaching us endurance. He's growing our patience or in some other unimaginable way. He is preparing us for eternity with him. God often works mercy to us from unexpected persons in unexpected circumstances and in unexpected ways. And of course, the greatest mercy God shows us, the most unexpected mercy is that the almighty, holy, righteous, pure, and altogether good God would save rebels such as us. He is our creator. He he is the giver of all good things, and we shake our fist at him in rebellion. We disobey his good and perfect law. We desire that which is ugly with sin and wickedness rather than desiring the beauty of his holiness. We're slaves to our sin and in a miserable estate. And in his mercy, God loved us. In his mercy, God redeemed us. In his mercy, God gave his only son to be a substitute in our place to suffer the wrath of his divine justice for us. As the 17th century pastor Jeremy Taylor put it, mercy is like a rainbow which God hath set in the clouds, it never shines after it is night. If we refuse mercy here, we shall have justice in eternity. If you would know God's mercy for eternity, you must trust in his mercy in Christ now. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with him mercies be, and plenteous redemption is ever found in he. Now is the time for mercy. When Christ returns, he will return in justice, and the time for mercy will have ended. Trust in Christ today. In his mercy, God counts our faith in Christ as righteousness. In his mercy, God forgives the sins of those who trust in Christ. In his mercy, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to our account. In his mercy, God adopts us as his children In his mercy, God appointed Christ to be our great high priest and intercessor. In his mercy, God reveals the riches of his grace to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In his mercy, God sovereignly works all things together for good. Remember the Spurgeon quote that I began with, Our sinnership is that emptiness into which God pours his mercy. We were impoverished, wretched sinners, enslaved to our sin and unable to help ourselves. And in that condition, God showed us mercy. 
When describing Christians, the apostle Peter says in his first letter that we who were once not a people are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy. And yet in spite of all this mercy that God has shown us, we lose sight of it. We forget his mercy. We have this short-sighted focus on what is happening right now. And we fail to trust the Father of mercies with the sovereign rule of all his creation. May we ever look to his mercy as the psalmist declares in Psalm 123, O thou that dwellest in the heavens, I lift mine eyes to thee. Behold, as servants' eyes do look, their master's hand to see. As, maids, as a handmaid's eyes her mistress' hand, so do our eyes attend upon the Lord our God until he mercy send. There's one more thing about mercy that I want us to see in this passage as we close, and that is, as we talked about in CLA this morning, God works through means to accomplish his perfect will in the world. In this case, he uses the means of Joseph to show mercy to Jacob and Joseph's brothers. It is our great privilege and joy to be used by God as those who know the mercy of God in Christ Jesus to then act in mercy toward others. In the eyes of men, Joseph would have been justified in seeking vengeance for what his brothers had done. Instead, he showed them mercy. This is not forgiveness, although that too is called for, but mercy. Remember that mercy is goodness which is done for those who are miserable and unable to do for themselves. We are a people who have known the mercy of God, and he has called us to act in mercy toward others. The wicked borrows, but the same he again doth not pay, whereas the righteous mercy shows and gives his own away. Psalm 37, 21. A wicked person takes advantage of others for their own personal gain. But the righteous person, the one who by faith in Christ has known the mercy of God, has been counted righteous in his sight, gives to those in need, to his own hurt even. Solomon instructs us in Proverbs 3, 3, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them upon the tablet of your heart. We're to bind mercy and truth to us, the truth which includes the fact that we have received mercy from God and so we should show mercy to others. Proverbs 14 makes it clear that to do otherwise would be a sin. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. And in verse 31, it, it ups the stakes even more. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. But he who honors him, that is his maker, has mercy on the needy. Do you want to honor God? Have mercy on the needy. Do good to those who cannot do for themselves. If we look at it that way, Paul's instruction in Romans 12 to show mercy with cheerfulness kind of takes on a new understanding. Giving of ourselves and the resources that God has entrusted to us for the good of those who are in need 
is a cheerful act when it is done, not for our own glory, not for the the praise of our own actions or our own name, but rather to honor the one who has shown us such great mercy. So I want to encourage you in two ways as we close today. First, I want to encourage you to remember our benevolence fund. Take a giving envelope, put your gift in it, mark it for benevolence, and put it in the offering box. That fund is there for the deacons to use to help those who are in need, particularly those who are part of our own church family. I would love to see that fund so grow because of our generosity that the deacons would start worrying about how they were going to use it all. That would be a good problem to have. But I also want to encourage you to show mercy personally. The Benevolence Fund is a wonderful way for us as a church family to pool our resources and to do what none of us could do individually. But mercy is more than just giving money to a fund. Mercy is doing good to those who are in need. This might mean taking a meal to someone who is in need or is is hurting in some way. It could be visiting a widow or a shut-in or someone you know is lonely or depressed. In Luke 10, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we're all familiar with this. But the Samaritan saw someone who was in desperate need, and he, he did something about it. He bandaged his wounds. It says that he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn. He gave up his own ride for someone who was in need. And then when he got to the inn, he told the innkeeper when he left, any other expenses, just keep track of it, and when I come back, I'll pay it. He he took the cost on himself. Jesus ends that parable with a question. He says, who was a neighbor to this man? Was it the priest and the Levite who walked by on the other side of the road, or was it the Samaritan? The man that he had been talking to reluctantly admitted, he said, he who showed mercy on him was his neighbor. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. God often works mercy to us from unexpected persons and unexpected circumstances and in unexpected ways. And sometimes if we are obedient, we can be the instrument through whom God works mercy to someone else. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So with humble hearts, let us learn to love the mercy of God to us in Christ Jesus and honoring our merciful Heavenly Father. Let us cheerfully show mercy to those who are in need. Let's pray.